Well, if you had to write a list of what defines you, what would you put on that list? What, what things would you kind of write down? And there's that, that first thought response that comes into your head, probably something crazy uh, that, that comes up. But one of the things that you might not know about me, one of the things that defines me is I have atrocious spelling. I really do. I think spelling is, is just a joke. Um, you, you think my spelling's a joke when you read it. Um, see, spelling has never been one of my gifts. It's not a spiritual gift in the Bible, nor is it a gift of Rowan. <laughs> if you will look at any of my Word documents, it's like they've got worms. Like There's little red squiggly lines all the way, all over them. And you're like, ah, oh, I need to give this thing a pill or something to get rid of these worms on the page. I, I, I hate spelling. I get frustrated too. When people point out that you've spelt something wrong, it really annoys me. So if you want to frustrate me in jest, do it. I love it. Uh, because people come up and go, oh, you spelt this wrong. I'm like, oh, so what should I have written? And they tell me. And I'm like, so I didn't need to spell it the right way because you understood what I was saying anyway. So what's the point of me spelling it right? Like, I communicated, you got it. Now, if you don't understand, that, that's a different point of view. But, and I've had that view of spelling for a long time, uh, but there was one moment when my life could have been different. There was a glimmer of hope for me. See, when I was in primary school, my nan, my, my grandmother, she, she made me this deal. She promised me that if I could get 100% in a primary school spelling test, she'd give me $100. Now, as a primary school kid, I'm like, show me the money. Like that, I'm up. Now, she probably thought it was a pretty safe bet. And, you know, you can imagine why you'd think that. Uh, and for months, I kind of, I've worked hard at trying to think through getting a better spelling mark. I kind of did a little bit more work and tried to apply myself like you're supposed to do. Um, but, but I only ever got to like the 80s. And then one day, I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm going to smash it. And it was a fairly easy spelling list week. And I'm like, now's my chance to run. And so what I did was, I worked really hard that week. I worked my butt off, and I did the unthinkable. I still remember uh, the phone call I made to tell my nan, guess what, I got 100% in a spelling test. And I still remember the pause at the end of when I said that. <laughs> it was like this, oh, did you? <laughs> and then she's like, well, you better put your mother on. Now, I don't know what she's thinking at that point. Maybe she was going, look, you could pay, this is your kid, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but I remember hovering around mum as she's chatting to my nan on the phone. Uh, you know, she's confirming I did get 100%. I'm like, yeah, like this is brilliant. I remember I had two questions that I wanted to ask mum as soon as she got off the phone. Mum kind of hangs up. And I'm like, so mum, mum, number one, am I actually going to get the money? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, she's going to give it to you. Now, I don't know where it came from. Maybe my mum ended up paying. I don't know. But I got the money, which was awesome. But the second question I then had straight, as away, straight away was, if I get 100% next week, cover another $100? <laughs> the answer was no, and there went the glimmer of hope for Rowan to ever have good spelling. I just went, why, why bother anymore? There's, there's no money in it. <laughs> it's one of those promises that someone gives you where you really have to work to get it. And that's why I worked for a bit, but I'm like, nah, this isn't worth it. I want you to compare for a moment a different promise, a promise that a friend of mine got from his grandfather. Out of the blue, his granddad called up. My friend was about to get married in a couple of months, and his granddad called up and just said, hey, look, I just, I've just been thinking, I just really was thinking about you the other day, and I just wanted to give you something. So I've decided that when you get married, I'm going to give you a house. Now, I'm not kidding. When he got married, what did he get? A house. It's worth three quarters of a million dollars today. He got given a house. My friend didn't have to do anything to get it. He, he didn't have to work to achieve it. All he did was just answer the phone and his granddad said, I'm going to give you a house. And he got this phenomenal gift. 
Now, when you compare those, those two promises, the deal that I had with my nan and the deal that this guy had with his granddad, which one would you prefer? I'm like the granddad one, <laughs> where you get the house for nothing you have to do. And the thing is, most people come along and think about religion in a similar way to the promise my nan gave me. People think about religion as we actually need to do stuff to, in order to, to get the reward. There's a reward maybe, maybe a life with God, maybe a better life now, but in order for me to achieve that, I have to work hard at it. I have to secure it by doing good things. And that's how often I think people think about Christianity. There is this reward, but I've got to be a good person to be able to, to do it. And if you think about it, there's this whole mentality we have in life in general that who I am and what I achieve matters because as we work hard, that gives us our reward. We start building our identity of ourselves around our achievements, around a sense of self, of, of where we live or what job we have or what car we drive or what clothes we wear. Or perhaps for you, it's what degree we've done or what marks we get. And we, we think about the work that we put in and then we stand back and go, yes, you know, this kind of defines who I am by the reward that we get. Problem is, we can have the same view of our relationship with God. How many times have you thought to yourself, you know, maybe things aren't going as well as they should be at the moment because God's not happy with me. Maybe I haven't treated Him as I should have. Maybe I'm sick at the moment or I've got these health issues because I haven't been giving God my full attention. I've not been giving Him my all. Have you ever had that thought? You know, I want to hazard a guess it's come into your head at some point. Maybe I'm not as successful as I could be or as pretty as I could be or popular or wealthy because I'm not giving God my best. What comes out of that view of God, that religiosity view of God, this idea to, that I've got to do in order to make God pleased with me, is this incredible weight that my acceptance before God is based on me getting 100% in the test God gives me of life. Friends, that's called religion, not Christianity. And it's a trap that the Galatian Christians had fallen into. See, the Apostle Paul had come through and, and had explained the news of what Jesus did for them, that he had died in their place and that he had risen again and that he had offered them life forever if they trusted in him. They'd come to know that news and trust in that news, that Jesus was the perfect substitute for them. And, and they understood that the promise was given, that there was nothing they needed to do other than accept it, just like my friend to the promise his granddad gave him. But they'd let those realities of what the gospel meant slip. They'd found themselves sliding back into religiosity, which is what we all do. Those moments we start thinking, maybe I'm not right with God because I haven't done this or I haven't done that. We slip into thinking of do versus done because we love to achieve things. We love to think, actually, I've earned this. And for these Galatian Christians, that meant keeping the law. If they wanted the promises of God, they needed to be in line with those the promises were given to. They needed to act in a Jewish way, and that's what others had been saying amongst them. But Paul has been saying over the last few weeks, if you've been here at all, if you've been hearing anything, no! <laughs> that undoes it. The moment we think we can contribute to the promise God has given us is the moment we say to our granddad, oh, thanks, granddad, well, what do I owe you for that house? Go got five bucks? No! I just giving you something worth a quarter of a million dollars and you want to pay it, that's offensive. The moment we think we can achieve our salvation, we lose our salvation. 
So many of the insecurities that we suffer in this life are because we base our identity on what we do. We base our hope before God on what we've done and we end up having no security because it depends on our effort. Just this week as I was preparing this talk, going through Galatians 2, I was kind of thinking through, how do I explain this point helpfully? And at that moment, as I'm thinking through the passage, um, I hear this knock at the door. Sarah was out, I went to the front door and answered it, and there's two people that came to the door and wanted to talk to me about the promises of God. Uh, they'd come to the door and they said, we're here witnessing about, um, about God and we'd like to talk to you about God and how to get right with Him. I was like, wow, okay. So I stood there and I said, they, they, they talked for a while and I said, look, are you sure that if you died tonight, God would accept you? Are you sure if you were to come before God and God would say, why should I let you in to my heaven, that you'd be in his heaven, in whatever plan is there for him? And they looked at me and they said, in all earnestness, we really hope we would. We hope that we've done enough. We hope that we've shared the gospel as he's told us to and tried to do what he's asked, that he would accept us in. And all that I could hear in my head was the voice of the Apostle Paul pleading with us and pleading with them. It doesn't rely on anything we do but what Jesus has done. There is security. You can have security because it doesn't depend on us. As I chatted through with them, that idea, they kept coming back and saying, no, Jesus did die for us, but we still have to do these things in order to show that we believe and we still need to have we need to do them to have assurance of our future. And I said, that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, the only way to get assurance is if it doesn't depend on what I do, because I'm going to fail, as I'm sure you've failed. Paul says, if you want to keep the law, if you want to do what God asks, we saw it last week, you need to keep it all. For if you're guilty of breaking God's law at just one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole lot. Please hear what God has been saying to us in this section of the book of Galatians. You cannot earn or buy or build or secure your own way to a better relationship with God. You can't do it. This week, Paul is going to show us something that is truly incredible about what God has done in His promises. The theologian J.I. Packer, if you've ever read Knowing God or any of the other great books, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, that he's written, he says that, What Paul explains this week in this passage is the magnum opus of all Christianity. It's it's the best thing. It's the thing we need to focus on. What is it? Well, let's hold on and see. (laughs) Because in order to see it, we need to compare the two gifts of God. One, the gift of the law, with two, the promise of God. See, God had given the law to Israel as a gift. And that's the thing the Galatians were going back to, fulfilling this law that was given from the Ten Commandments. And they thought that the law was the foundation of their faith, but they missed the priority of the promise. If you take your notes, we're in the first point right now. The priority of the promise. Come with me, Galatians 3, verse 17. Paul says, my point is this. The law, which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant or promise previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. Now, now Paul would make a great lawyer. He probably was. He's kind of this kind of uh, Jewish kind of Pharisee type guy that had kind of known the law. He, he, was, he was great in these areas. But the argument tonight is going to get a bit legal and a bit dense as we try and understand what's going on. But what he's saying is, you've got to understand Israel's history. See, the law was given to Israel when? 
on Mount Sinai. When, when God came uh, uh, and, and, and spoke and then Moses brought these words that were written on ten stone tablets down the mountain to give to Israel on Mount Sinai, was in Exodus 20. And God said, as He started the Ten Commandments, since I've saved you, since I've brought you out of slavery in Egypt, and now I'm making you my people, this is the way you are to act if you want to remain my people. This is how you are to respond to me. I've made you my people, now this is how you need to act in order to remain my people. It's a little bit like the deal my nan made with me. It was a set of rules given to Israel, good rules, by which they could secure the blessings that God had given them, to make sure that they held on to them to the end. But Paul makes the point that the, that the promise, that there was a promise from God given 430 years before the law. So the law was given in Exodus 20, but something came before that, a covenant. Now, a covenant, it, it, it's, it's just a promise, but it's not like some political promise that we think about. You know, it's going to change with the next wind of advisors. Someone says, I'm going to promise to do this, and then I'm going to promise to do that, and it never happens, right? And it's not like that. It's a promise from God, who does not lie, who does not say one thing and then just change his mind willy-nilly to say another, whose word is true and always true, whose promises always come about. In fact, so strong was this promise that God gave to a man named Abraham, that he goes through a visual ceremony to help Abraham know how committed to this promise he is. It's in Genesis 15, if you want to read it a little bit later, but what basically happens is God gets a cow, a goat, and a ram. There's a couple of a dove and a turtle and a pigeon in there as well. Uh, But he gets a cow, a goat, and a ram, and then cuts them in half. They're sliced, each of those animals sliced in half. And he puts one half on one side, one half on the other. And there's animals, you can imagine it. There's a bit of blood going on, and you're like, whoa, what is this? And then God stands between them. He walks between them all, and He says to Abraham, so sure are the promises that I'm giving to you, that if they don't happen, then let what has happened to these animals happen to me. It was called the cutting of a promise. <laughs> a promise was, was cut, and what He was saying is this symbol that happened in the ancient Near East to say, I'm, I'm behind this. It's a fair bit trickier than just signing on a piece of paper, the way that we keep our promises today, right? It's actually going, it's visually saying that if I don't keep this, let me be dead. Let me be cut in two. And imagine if we did that today in wedding services, wedding ceremonies. That could be a bit more, a bit more messy, I guess. You know, people are worried about the, the flowers and petals and rice that are left on the ground at weddings. I mean, we worry about all the blood, right? But it's, imagine the symbol. I'm making these promises to you, and if I don't keep them, let me be like those animals. You can imagine the stage at the, at the wedding with a couple up the front and dead animals split about. But it's visual, but God is saying this is the way we need to think. In fact, God is saying this is the way He thinks. We need to think about His promises. So what was the promise? Well, come with me, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise. (laughs) That's better than a house any day. What what has he offered? What has he said? God has said, I will give you land that is your own. I will make you into a nation, a great nation, And I will give you blessing and through you bring blessing to the whole world. 
you're like, whoa. Now, now what did Abraham do to, be, to earn that promise? Nothing. Literally, he did nothing. God just goes, I'm going to choose you. And picks Abraham and says, you know what, I'm going to do this for you. And I'm going to do it so strong am I going to do it that if I don't do it, let me be cut in half. Abraham didn't deserve it. He hadn't earned it. God just did it. And so this promise that God gives 430 years before the law came, Paul says is unconditional. It was a promise given to Abraham. And Paul's argument earlier was that for those that believed like Abraham believed God's word, who trusted in the promise of God, they would be declared right with God like Abraham was. God gave him this gift of being declared right and bringing his blessing on him. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. He just trusted in the word of God. Abraham was blessed by faith, by trusting in God's promises to him. Just like we are blessed by trusting in God's promises made more clear in Jesus. Now, Paul wants the Galatians and us to understand that we need to recognize that that's how we need to continue as Christians. We've got this propensity to go back to thinking that we can earn stuff, that we've got to do stuff. And so he says, well, you've got to recognize that the law, the thing these Galatian Christians were falling back into, let's, let's kind of go into the circumcision party and let's keep these Jewish things so we can get the Jewish promises from God. Those things came 430 years after the promise of God came. And so... He wants people to see that the law that came after the promise can't change God's promise. See, God's promise is kind of like a will. You know, you know your last will and testimony, the testimony that you write down, and you're kind of like, okay, here's what I'm going to leave to Aunt Betsy or whatever, when all the people are there, and you write down how you want things to break up and how you'll leave um, the majority of your kind of um, thing to this person or to that person and what you're going to do. The thing is, you can change your will while you're still alive. You can go back into the lawyer and sit down and cross out people's names because you don't like them and put someone else in there. And you can do that, right? It's fine. But once you are dead, that will's not changing for anything. You can't pass a law later on to say, actually, we've now passed a law that what they meant there has changed. No, 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 no. It's happened. It's kind of set. And by God walking through and cutting that covenant and that promise 430 years earlier, he's saying that will not change. No law that came afterwards can nullify that promise. The priority is of the promise. Look at verse 17 again. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, by doing what the law says, right, it's no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously, graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. The inheritance has been given to Abraham through the promise, not the law. The inheritance of God's promise was never based on the law. But the promise of God, land, nation, blessings, they were given as a promise. So Paul's saying, stop getting caught up in doing stuff with the law and trust God's promise. Trust His Word. And that raises the question for us all, so what's the point of the law then? <laughs> Why did the law come 430 years later? Why didn't we just cruise along with the promise that God had given? And sweet, everyone's in. We get the house. You're like, woo, we're done. What was the effect of the law? That's point two if you're following along in your outlines. Paul tells us it had two effects. The first effect of the law was to show us our failure. 
just to show us our failure. Look at verse 19 in chapter 3 of Galatians. Why then was the law given? It's always great when you've got a question in your head and then Paul asks that very question. You know, great, I'm understanding the Bible with the way that it's going. So, why then was the law given, Paul asks? It was added for the sake of transgressions. God's law was given to show us we fall short of God's perfect plan for us. To show us that we aren't perfect like God is, that we aren't like Him. It was never meant to free us from sin. It was never meant to be the means by which we would receive the promises of God. It was meant to increase our sin. Have a look at verse 21 of chapter 3. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness, being declared right before God, would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. God's law showed us stuff we didn't even know. Really? It's not right at this moment to, to murder someone? And suddenly we, we see the law that says, do not murder. And we're like, okay, now I see that I shouldn't be doing that. And it showed me and us and Israel how sinful they were. Not only did it do that, but the, the law kind of made us look at things that we didn't even know were wrong and we didn't even want to do and showed our own sinfulness because once we realize we're wrong, once we realize they're wrong, we want to do them. I'll explain this. Um, you've got to be honest with what I'm going to ask you, okay? Who in this room right now wants to put their hand under their chair? Anyone? Right. No one wanted to do that. You're sitting here, you going, no, I don't want to put my hand on the chair. You ready? Ready, ready? I forbid anyone in this room to put their hand under the chair. Seriously, you can't do it. I don't want anyone to do it. Now, show of hands, who wants to put their hand under their chair? Yeah. That is how the law works. It shows us how sinful we are. I didn't know putting my hand on the chair was wrong. I never wanted to do that before, but now you've told me it's wrong. Oh, my hand's on the chair. I want to do it. Ah, stop. No, I can't, but I want to. And that's what it's like. That is the role of the law. It showed us our failure. It acts as a bright light on the sinfulness of humanity, exposing our rebellion and causing our sinful selves to desire it even more. Things we weren't supposed to have. The law shows us our failure and shows us how enslaved to sin we are. We are slaves. Just try and live according to God's law for a day. <laughs> Fail. Can't do it. I'm a slave. I can't get out. I'm stuck under it. I, I can't remove myself from it. I, I, I can't live up to its standards. I can't get 100% in every test, every day. I just can't do it. The law shows us our failure. But the second purpose of the law is that it acted as a guardian. Look at verse 24. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. Now, what is a guardian? Right? What is this idea of a guardian? You think I've got a legal guardian, and that's until you, you come of age, uh, you've got someone who makes some of the calls in your life that they can say, yes, you can go to this um, school trip or not, and they sign permission slips for you. We do it for our kids all the time. It's really annoying, but hey, that's the role you've got to take uh, as a parent. But um, the guardian kind of looks after the child. And what Paul's saying is that God's law was a good guardian looking after Israel. The rules that he gave were helpful. They helped God's people to live rightly, to understand what right living was, even though you couldn't live up to it. It gave them no excuse for ignorance of what right living was. The law provided a help to God's people to understand God and His goodness. 
There's a reason why so many of today's laws are based on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Because God's law is good. The way that He'd given it is right. God gave the law as a guardian for those waiting for a time when that law was no longer needed, when someone would come and fulfill that law. Now, to help explain this, I want, to, I want you to imagine for a moment a couple, a guy and a girl, and they fall in love. And was like, oh, right? They love one another. Uh, they decide that they're going to formalize their love for one another by making promises to each other at a wedding. I'm not going to have cows and goats out the front cut in half, but, you know, they're going to put a ring on a finger and sign a bit of paper and say, actually, we want to formalize the promises that we're making. And they're big promises to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. That's a promise they make to one another. Oh, and they mean it. And they give that promise to each other. And off they go. They set off into marriage. They've had their wedding day. Marriage is going well for a while. But as time passes, this marriage kind of starts to break down a bit. They start to see the failures in one another. They each bring their share of sinfulness into the marriage. And after three years, they're kind of stuck. They come to loggerheads and they're kind of sick of each other. They're sick of what he does and what she does. So they end up going to a marriage council and going, look, we need help. We're at this point where we've lost the love we once had and it feels like we're just going through the motions. The marriage is so broken that the counselor sits them down and says, right, you guys need help. So I'm going to give you a list of stuff you've got to do. And he turns to the guy and he says, okay, what you've got to do, husband, you need to buy your wife flowers once a week on Fridays, every week. Don't care whether you want to do it or not. I don't care whether she's been helpful or not. You're just going to buy her flowers because you're going to show her that every week. You just got to do it. Then he turns to the wife and he says, okay, wife, you need to let your husband play Xbox just once a week. Okay. Two hours, Xbox free time. You can go, you're not going to complain or, or, or get angry, you're just going to let him play the Xbox. I know it frustrates you and annoys you that he's playing this dumb game, but you're going to go, look, just, I'm just going to do it. You won't feel like doing it, but you're just going to do it. And then both of you, no talking about the in-laws, right? So there's a kind of clear rules set up. And the, and the couple, they go away and they, 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 they try to do this stuff and sometimes the guy forgets to send the flowers, but he's like, ah, oh, apparently you said it was good, but I'm going to keep trying to do it and it's kind of right to do that. But ah, oh. and, and, and the wife, she's kind of going, well, I guess you can play the Xbox, but then she's kind of creeping in, wanting to make it smaller. And, you know, for a while, the rules are kind of helpful to show love for each other, but it doesn't really change too much, but does kind of hold them in this relationship until the day comes when the husband is diagnosed with kidney failure. He goes to the doctor and gets the, the news that his kidneys are both shot, gone. And his only hope is for someone who can give him a new kidney. The news shocks the wife as well, and she's kind of not sure what to do. And uh, the doctors say, look, we need to, here's a test to give to all your relatives. And so he gives a test to all his relatives. And it comes back that the wife could donate her kidney to the husband. She's a match. And so despite the frustration within their marriage, despite where they're at, she gives his kidney, her kidney, to him. She donates it. And the husband at this point is kind of like amazed at what she's done, at this generosity, this sacrificialness that, that she would give him his kidney when she probably would have preferred he just died and she could have married someone else. Like, that would have been great. But he does this, she, she does this for him, and that reminds him of the promises they made, they made that day to have and to hold from this day forward. 
And from that moment on, there's like a new lease of love within their marriage, a new lease of life. They, they start recognizing that they actually want to love one another because of the promises that are made. And, and what starts to happen is that the husband just starts buying flowers for his wife. Not because he has to on Fridays, but because he, he wants to. And the wife starts playing Xbox with him. Whoa! Only once a week. <laughs> See, the couple at that point no longer needed the counsellor. They didn't need the rules set up, the do's and don'ts, to keep them going along because the fulfilment of the promise that they'd been given was coming. They'd seen the sacrificial love given to one another and it woke them up from their stupidity and showed them that they didn't need that, those rules anymore to keep them going. For the promise had come. Those rules, those laws are exactly what the law did for Israel. They kept Israel on the straight and narrow. They got reminded of God's goodness and the way to live and help them along the way, but also showed them that, well, they couldn't keep the law. It was a guardian until the time when the promise could be fulfilled would come. Now, I heard someone once say that a helpful reminder to think through what is the role of a law is a pointer hand. So when you hold your hand like, like that, everyone put your hand, don't poke someone in the eye, but put your hand and, and go like, like that, right? That's the law. You need to hold it for a while. I know you can't probably write, do it with your left hand. Uh, the, the, what's helpful is there's, there's a thumb pointing up. The law reminds us of how good God is, of His good ways. There's a helpful reminder that it points to, to God's goodness and holiness. But then there's three fingers pointing back and they go, we suck. We, we, we can't do that. <laughs> I can't keep God's law because I keep failing and I keep running back to sin. But there's this one finger pointing forward. And it's pointing forward to the fulfillment of the promise. The law points forward to the day that the one would come who could keep it fully. And that's where we see the point of the promise. Now, I made a big mistake in our outline this week. I gave you the answer in the very question. Do you see that, the point of the promise? Cross out the next word and pretend it's not there, but that's the answer to the point of the promise. It was wrong to cross Jesus out, doesn't it? <laughs> point number three, the point of the promise. See, for these Galatians, the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party, the, the Jews had, had come along and they were saying, to inherit the fullness of the promises of God. Yes, Jesus has died for us. This is brilliant. He's God's promised king. But if you want the full promises to Abraham, then you need to live out the law. You need to display the signs of the Jewish law. You need to be Jewish. And you can understand why, right? Because God's promise to Abraham are irrevocable. He'd made this promise. They, they precede the law. And so they're kind of going, well, you need, to, you need to do this. They're given to the Jews. You need to be Jewish. And so they want people to act in a Jewish way, which is just typified by the law. It's as if they were waiting for Israel to grow once again to be a great nation to have their own land and to bring blessing to the nations around them. And you know, there are some today, as we come along to this, where we are still looking for these promises to happen. And we ought, because God's promises are irrevocable. But sometimes we come along and we're looking again for Israel to be the great nation. We're looking for Israel to have its own land as, as laid out in Genesis 15 and, and to bring blessing to all the nations. That's why there's so much focus on Jerusalem for some Christians. But I want you to listen to what Paul says. Because Paul says something here that's very, very clear about what that promise was actually about. Look at verse 16. Genesis 3, 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So what promises? Land, great nation, blessing. Now it was spoken to Abraham and to his seed, or his descendant. 
He does not say antecedes, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. Paul's saying the promise was given to Abraham and not to all Abraham's descendants, not to all Jews, not to the, just the 12 tribes of Israel that they could enjoy that. It wasn't that, that was what it was about. God gave the promise of land, nation, and blessing, the irrevocable promise to Abraham and Abraham's seed singular, the one descendant who was the true Jew, Jesus. The promise to Abraham was all about Jesus. Jesus is the singular human to whom the promise was made and being fulfilled. Not just to a national Israel, not to all the, the physical descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, but to one descendant of Israel, one true Jew, Jesus. And it's in Jesus that Abraham's descendants are made more numerous than the stars. It's not because Israel becomes such a huge nation, it's because, well, as people trust in Christ, they then become united to Him and make Him their King. And the nation that has Jesus as their King is massive. Every tribe and language and people and nation gathered together because of Christ. The new kingdom is formed with Jesus as King. A kingdom that won't end. A kingdom that extends to the whole earth when the new heavens and the new earth are made. It's in Jesus that promise of the land is given as well. Yeah, it includes the physical boundaries that are given in Genesis 15. But as God remakes the earth and there is a new heaven and a new earth, it's expanded. The whole world is His, not just some little patch of dirt in, in the Middle East, but the whole new creation sits under Jesus as King when He comes back. Here's the thing. The Galatians, who aren't Jews, get to partake in the promises of God. They get to do it the same way that the Jews do now as well. There's not two ways. It's just by trusting Jesus. It's not by obeying the law, but by trusting that Jesus is Abraham's seed, by being united to Him. Just as Jesus was the perfect life offered for us, so was His perfect Jewishness offered to us. So those who trust in Jesus, the true Jew, share in all the promises that have been given to Jesus. The fulfillment of the irrevocable promises to Abraham. Look at verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promises might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. What promises? Promises of Abraham. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now, that the perfect seed of Abraham has come, there's no need for the law. There's no need for that, that, that married couple to keep sticking to Friday flowers and, and Saturday Xbox and just doing it in, in a wooden way because they've remembered the promises now. They actually want to live that way. To try and keep the law would be crazy. It'd be like saying, I've been released from the prison of, of, of the law. The way it's sat over me and, and, and worked and imprisoned me. I've been released from prison now I've been saved by Christ, but I'm going to go back and sit in prison just because I can. Just because it's kind of what I need to do to be a, be a freed prisoner, but not quite free. It's, it's crazy. And the promises of God to Abraham are given to Jesus and to all of those who trust Him. 
That's why that idea with being united with Christ, that, that idea we talked about, about being in the plane, where Jesus is the plane, we, we can't be under the plane or following the plane or inspired by the plane. We need to be in the plane for the effects of the plane to apply to us. If you have faith in Jesus, then you get to inherit the promises of God to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus. Look at verse 37, sorry, 27. 37 doesn't exist. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Now, baptism, the word just means immersion. It's not saying, oh, for those of you who have been water baptized and went down to the water and came back out. No, he's saying, if you've been united to Christ, immersed in Him, washed by Him, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've gotten on the plane, then you've been clothed with Christ. As God looks at you, He sees Him. Now, we need to hear this, because if that's true, it means that the division between Jew and Gentile is abolished. It matters diddly squat whether you're a Jew or a Gentile in regard to the promises given to Abraham, because the promises given to Abraham are not given to the Jews, but to the one Jew, Jesus, and all who are united to Him by faith. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying there's no distinction. Yeah, there are ethnic Jews and ethnic non-Jews. There are male and female, and there's differences in roles that are there uh, throughout the church. There are people that are slaves and free. They're in different types of, of workplace. There's differences, but he's saying when it comes to the promises of God that Abraham had, that God had given to Abraham and his seed, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It's immaterial. What matters is, do you trust in Christ? Are you in Him? Are you united to Christ by trusting Him? Look at what he says in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, ready? Then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Yeah, woo! By faith, you are united to the true Jew to whom those promises were given. Land, nation, blessing, kingdom that lasts forever, new heaven and new earth. They're given to us, irrespective of ethnicity, employment status, or gender. They even let Australians in. Like, it's crazy. Here's where Paul blows our minds and shows us what Packer calls the magnum opus of Christianity. It's the effect of the promise. Point number four. Firstly, faith in Christ abolishes division. The ground at the foot of the cross is incredibly flat. There's no one who can stand up and go, you know what, I deserve Jesus' death more than you. I, I, was, I was ethnically this way or that way. I was better at doing this or that, or I had some sort of privilege beforehand. No, no, no. The foot of the cross is, we all deserve death, judgment, and hell. But Jesus died in our place. He rose again, and with nothing to offer, we have nothing to offer at all. He just says, here it is. Like my friend's granddad gave him a house. He says, it's yours. Take the keys. All we need to do is simply accept the love of God shown in His Son, Jesus' death in my place, offering His life for mine. And being united with Him, me being in Him by faith, means that as we sit here as Christians, there, there, there are no grounds for racism, no grounds for sexism or workplace elitism, none at all. Do you know, if we subscribe to the survival of the fittest as the way we need to think, and it's the fittest that should win, then there's every ground for racism, sexism, workplace elitism. Because the weak should suffer and die. But here, the, the, the essence of multiculturalism, the essence of equity, of humanity, 
comes because, well, we're all beggars at the foot of the cross. We don't deserve anything. I've got nothing to contribute. But I'm just amazed at what Jesus has done for me. Friends, there is no room in the church for any one-upmanship. No room to say, I'm better than you. I'm more deserving than you. Look at how great I am. Neither is there room to say, well, I'm much worse than everyone else. No, God couldn't possibly love me. I'm I'm so much worse than what they've done. The ground at the cross is incredibly flat. There is no division other than this. Are you in Christ or not? But there's one more thing Paul wants to show us. And it's even more magnificent than that. For those who trust in Jesus, we, like Jesus, are God's sons. We are called his child. Look at Galatians 4 verse 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God the Son, Jesus, sent from God, the one who'd been with the Father for all eternity, the one who has perfect relationship with his Father. Imagine being like Jesus. Imagine knowing the Father and setting up the plans for the universe before any of it began. Imagine being there within the Trinity and knowing the relationships within the Godhead. That Jesus who was there, who saw it all, who was with it, who was God in the person of the Son, came to earth, died, and through his death and resurrection, brought us back from our slavery to our failure to obey the law. He, he redeemed us from our sin. That's amazing that God the Son would do that. It's phenomenal that that would, would happen. And the problem is that so often we just stop at what God has done in that. This idea of justification, it's a phenomenal idea. That we declared right with God because of what Jesus did. It's, it's amazing truth. But when we stop at justification... We sell ourselves short. We miss out on on the greater magnum opus of of what is to come. What could be greater than justification? I'm glad you asked. The reason he justified us. Look at verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. We get invited into the Godhead. We get to call God the Father our Father. He's our Dad. He's the one who who loves us like a father loves a son, like a dad loves his daughter. God does this amazing thing of bringing us into relationship with him. Justification is is a forensic idea. It's legal. You're declared right before God. Bang, done. Adoption, it's a family idea. You've been invited into God's family. You are a child of God. You can go to the creator of the universe and say, hey, dad, I want to bring these things before you. I want to chat to you. There's a closeness and affection and generosity that God looks at us as his children. That is unheard of. God looks at you if you trust in Jesus as his child. You've been adopted into the most important family in the world. There is no greater privilege than being able to call God our Father. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered from Him, no matter how broken you are and how messy your life feels, if you trust in Jesus, if you've placed your life and your future in His hands, you are a child of God. You are. God says it. Who are we to say, no, I'm not. God says, you are my child. If you've trusted Jesus, I'll call you my son. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father, Dad. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Now, I'm sorry, ladies in the room tonight. This is one of the circumstances where you're going to need to be a son and not a daughter. Sometimes we want to come along to these passages and go, well, I'm a daughter at this point, but you don't want to be a daughter. See, a daughter was not the heir. A daughter would not inherit everything that was the father's. What God is saying is that you can be called sons. He does not stop anyone who trusts in Jesus from being an heir. He calls you his sons and gives you the inheritance that was promised to Abraham to be called God's son and a co-heir with Christ. If us guys get to be the bride of Christ, you're going to be okay with being sons. Yeah. But we need to get the gravity of that. We've not only been set free from our slavery to sin under the law, but God has moved us from being slaves to sons. He's placed His Spirit in us, the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is our brother. We can call the Father our dad. Do you see how amazing this is? There is nothing better than being able to run to our dad and Him being the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. And him securing the promises of what our future will be by saying, I'm going to do this to you no matter what you do because of Jesus. (laughs) How great is the promise? Here's the question that we need to ask though. Do you really understand who you are? Tonight, as you sit here, do you understand who you really are? For there are only two options. You are either a slave to your own sinfulness and rebellion and deserving death and judgment and hell because we haven't trusted in Christ. Or you're a son. You're a child of God. You will inherit everything that He has. You will inherit the earth as God's adopted child. Your identity, because of nothing you or I have done, is being called a child of God. Friends, if you, do you experience the joy of knowing who you really are? The joy that comes from calling the creator of the universe your dad? Because we need to reflect on that. The thing that excites us as Christians isn't just Jesus' death in our place, but the fact that we have been set free from slavery and are now called sons. And as His children, there's nothing more He can give. (laughs) We've already been promised a full inheritance. We are co-heirs with God the Son. What else is there that we have not already been promised? And there is nothing more we need other than the promise of our loving Father who said, I'll do it. You can bet my life on it. So don't let anything or anyone else define who you are. But let the God of the universe, who lavished His love on us as His child, as Jesus' brother, and as heirs of the promise of Abraham, tell you who you are. If you trust in Jesus, you are a child of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, tonight, For many of us, thinking through this reality that we are called your children, it is amazing. For many of us, we have different views of of parenthood and on a family and the way that dads have treated us, but we are so thankful for the way that you've treated us. That you've given your promise to Jesus and that promise is applied to us by us just trusting what he has done. Father, help us to see tonight the, the reality that our identity is tied up in our response to Jesus. Help us to recognize that we're either slaves or sons. And help us to find great joy 
in the reality that we are called your children, that we can call you our dad, that we can come to you and speak to you, that our future is secure. And for those of us who don't yet know you as Father, we pray tonight, Lord. For many of us, it might be the first time, we ask that you would accept us into your family, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection. Father, it is such a joy to be called your children. Help us to live that way. Amen. Okay. Be quick, because we haven't got heaps of time. So let's go through some quick questions. Uh, Number one, uh, can we not please God with works done in faith? Is there more of a reward in doing good works as a Christian? Yeah, so, so Paul talks about, he gets to enjoy the crown of his, of his um, salvation. Uh, and I think what he's talking about is, as he shares the news of Jesus with people, they, they come to trust in him, uh, in, in Jesus. Uh, and, and then, as they do, Paul will spend an eternity with them. So there is a real relational sense in which Jesus talks about storing up treasure in heaven. And I think that's saying, do things now with your life that will last into eternity. But you're not earning your reward. You're simply telling people about Jesus and then through you, God brings them to know Him and then you get to spend an eternity with them as brothers in Christ, as co-heirs. And so I think there is a great um, priority and joy and blessing that comes from sharing the news of Jesus, from walking alongside people and caring for them that goes beyond this world. But we don't earn it. There's nothing that we can earn. There's nothing we can ever add. Now, the next few weeks, as we, as we unpack chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Galatians, we're going to see what it means to walk with the Spirit, what it means to live out being part of God's family. And there's a reality to that, but that never achieves the promises of God being applied to us or any greater reward other than the joy of seeing more people alongside us. So, question number two. Uh, where does it say in Genesis 15 that God will be cut in half the promises that aren't fulfilled? Great question. It talks about Him. Uh, this is good. The quick answer, someone's going to call this out. It's Genesis 15 where he lays out the heifer and the cow and and the goat and the turtle dove and the pigeon. Uh, But it doesn't talk about God being cut in half. In order to see that, you need to go to Jeremiah, I think, 21. Someone call out if it's somewhere different. Oh, great. Does anyone actually know? I think it's Jeremiah 21. I, I half said this this morning and then didn't check it. In Jeremiah 21, it talks about a covenant being cut uh, and of Israel not, not doing that. It's not 21, is it? Can, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say Lachlan's going to call out at the end of question time which part of Jeremiah 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 it is uh, as he looks through that quickly and then we can come back and answer that question. So that'll be a quick way. Thanks, brother. Love you. All right, question three. Um, what is verse um, 19, the second half of 19 to 20 talking about? Who is the mediator? How are the angels involved? Why is it add, but God is one? Great question. Uh, I should chat about that in connect groups. It would be a really helpful point to unpack that. Um, uh, so what that's really talking about is the, the difference between the first covenant uh, that God has given, the promise, and then the law. So how did the law come? As you think through that in Exodus 20, what's happening? Mo- Moses um, goes up the mountain on behalf of the people. People are like, we don't want to go. Just send Moses. We don't want to hear God speak from heaven. And so God speaks, but he kind of speaks in, in a mediated way. He, he lets his glory go past and Moses is hidden in a cleft of a rock and he kind of, Moses shines from God's glory going past and it's mediated. So, so the people have the mediator, who is Moses, come and speak to them about God's plans and promises and how to live. So it goes through a number of channels in order to get to them. But 
God is one, and as God, is, um, God the Son comes, we hear, we are united to Christ. There's no mediator, well, it's Jesus. We're united to Jesus. And so, the promise that comes through Jesus is way better than the law, because the promise comes direct from us being united to Christ, straight from God to us because of Jesus. Whereas, it goes through God, to Moses, to the people. And so, he's saying the closeness of us to God is far better in the promise than the law. That's one of the arguments for saying the law is better than the promise. So, there you go. Uh, question four. Um, is it fair to say that the promises to bless other nations in Genesis 12 and have many offspring in 15 were never for the physical nation of Israel, even before Jesus came? Yeah. So, that's what Paul kind of says. Although you see some of it partially fulfilled in this shadow of what is to come. So, a helpful place to go to to understand a little bit of how this works is, you see that the law had a shadow in the whole sacrificial system. Uh, and, and Hebrews talks about that. that. The blood of bulls and goats that God said, right, you need to sacrifice bulls for sin, so blood must be spilt. Uh, so, when you sin and they put their hands on the scapegoat and sent the scapegoat out, as it was punished for the sins of the people. All of that never actually dealt with our sin it was just a, a, a shadow pointing to a greater reality to help us recognize when the reality called Jesus came. And so in Genesis 12, uh, you do see the nations grow. You do see Israel, sorry, you see um, the nations come to Israel. You see that with the Queen of Sheba uh, and Solomon. Uh, you see through David, there's this great high point where, where Israel are in the land and they're ruling and things are going well. Uh, and, and you're like, oh, maybe this is it, but don't get tricked. It was just a shadow. That is, it is good and is on that right direction, but was never perfect. What does David do? He sees some woman bathing on a roof and then sleeps with her and then is like, oh, what have I done? And so decides to kill her husband. He rapes a woman and kills... Like, this is the king of Israel. This is the, the Messiah, God's, God's chosen king at that point in time. And you're like, even at the high point of, of the kingdom, you're like, this, this ain't great. All right? And, and, but then who does God use? Do you know who God uses for the promises for His Son? Who is the descendant of David? Solomon. Do you know whose mum Solomon is? Bathsheba's. Even in David's brokenness and in his wrong, God chooses to work through his brokenness to say, do you know what? I don't choose the best people. I choose the shockers. <laughs> and I'm still able to bring about my promises through this. So the promises were a shadow that is fulfilled in the reality of Jesus, where we see all nations coming through, being trusting in him and, and experiencing the blessings of that, those Genesis promises. So there we go. And number five, are there any promises aimed specifically towards Abraham's literal descendants or are all the Old Testament promises for us as Christians? That's great. Um, there's a trick behind this question. All of the promises are always aimed only at Israel's descendants. Jesus. You hear that? The promises to Abraham were aimed to the seed, singular, Christ. And then they get applied to us as we're united to that seed, as we by faith trust in Christ. And so the promises were, were always for the nations to come together through Christ. Now, yes, the, the very beginning says all nations will be blessed, and the way that that would happen would be through one true Jew who always lived God's way, who came and the promises were given to, and then through faith, people are united to Him and get to experience them. So you get that? Hopefully that's clear. Number six... Uh, is it possible uh, to be in a place where you are, in fact, truly saved, but still don't fully understand the gospel, and that you think you have to do things to please God? 
Um, well, firstly, I want to say this is great because you're not in that place who has asked this question, so be confident because you're recognizing that in order to be saved, we need to just trust that God's done it for us. So, good, good point, but others might be in that place. In particular, I think about people responding 90% to the question, how sure are you that you would get into heaven if you died today? Um, I would, at that, the response to that question, I would lovingly and carefully and slowly explain to that person that what you're saying is, that Jesus' death and resurrection and life gets us 90% of the way there to us being saved. And then we need to top up Jesus. We need to come along and do 10% ourselves because what He's given us isn't enough. At that moment, we go, whoa, 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 hang on. (laughs) That doesn't sound right because Jesus' death was sufficient. Would God really send His Son? Would Jesus really willingly die and then leave 10% to us? (laughs) No! No! I, um, I heard an illustration once of, of a guy. You remember that the, the guy from the movie 127 Hours, that, that guy that was stuck in, in, a, in, a, in a crater when he was out on his own, being a mountaineer man and, I don't know, chewing goats. Anyway, so he's out there and he gets climbing and this boulder moves and pins his arm and he gets stuck there, right? And he's like, he's going to die. He's only got like one cube of chocolate or something. And so then he, he decides that it's either him dying or he loses his arm because he can't get it out. And so he literally cuts off his arm. Right? It's a great sacrifice to himself, cuts off his arm, limps his way back. And then imagine he got back into the hospital, they fixed up his arm, and the nurse comes along and goes, oh, you know what? Yeah, I was at that rock the other day too. Yeah, you just needed that there was, a, there was a, um, a log around the corner. And if you just pushed that log a little bit more with your foot, it would have come off and there would have been a way out. He'd be like, no, I just lost my arm and I could have just kicked the log. Right? Would Jesus really die in our place if there was another way to be saved? Would Jesus really do that if it wasn't secured for us? If we had to add to it, what would be the point? If He gave His life, but we still needed to add the 10%. And so, at that point, you want to go, no, no, uh, you need to recognize that it is all Him. We, we cannot do it. You break one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. The only hope we have is that the, the plane called Jesus will take us to where we need to be. We need to be in the plane. We need to be trusting Him for our salvation. Now, what that looks like, we'll see over the coming weeks, that we need to actually sit on the plane and remain in the plane even when it gets rough. We need to, to live God's way, not in order to be saved, but as, as good plain citizens. <laughs> um, and so we need, to, we need to do live that out in the way that we live, but we can't go, um, we can't say that we contribute anything because it undoes what Christ has done. The very last thing to show you, and I hope it's on the screen, is Jeremiah thirty four eighteen. Thank you, Lachlan. As for those who disobeyed my covenant, so here's an example of this, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces. The officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the pieces of the calf, all these I will hand over to their enemies, to those who intend to take their life. Their corpses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land. What it's showing you is an ancient Near East custom of how covenants were cut. And here, the people had promised, uh, the leaders of Israel would promise God that they would do this, and they did it by the same covenant-cutting mechanism with which God uses in um, Genesis 15, where He goes and takes the animals, cuts them in two, and God stands between them. So while it doesn't say God Himself will die at that point, you've got to recognize that's what's actually happening, and that's what God does here in Jeremiah 34. So if you've got more questions, do come and chat to me. There's lots in tonight, and I'd love to talk to you about it. So come up the front, chat afterwards, but why don't we pray? Lord, it has been so good tonight to open your word. Your word is always true. Your word is always good. And your word brings life. 
We pray that this night, as we, we grapple with the way you've acted throughout history, with the way you've shown your love for us, that you'd help us to recognize that we have been set free because of nothing we've done, but all because of Jesus. And that we can be called your children, that you call us your children. Lord, it is such a blessing. We want to thank you so much for this, that you just chose to bless us because you're good and you are God. We're so amazed at you and we give you thanks. In your son's name we pray. Amen.